This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Guys, we are uh, in the middle of a series through Isaiah, and uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be able to continue that this morning, um, particularly when we think about uh, the, the baptisms that are going to be taking place a little bit later. And this morning, we're talking about the servant, Jesus, who is God in our place. And um, it was just so special this last week, watching the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. And um, seeing even the, our kids' faces going, ah, we, we know those places, we, we were there just last summer. So to be able to share that with them was really special. And I think listening to some of the 90-plus-year-old uh, men and some of the ladies as well, um, hearing some of their story, but almost to a man, you hear the comment, I'm no hero, I was just lucky. The heroes are the ones lying there, you know, pointing at the... Uh, at the gravestones of their comrades. My dad, as a young child, spent World War II in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia was a Dutch colony at the time, and my grandmother, as I understand it, was the head nurse in their area of the concentration camp. Um, now, my father very, very rarely spoke about anything that happened there, but one day he told me the story, and he was uh, just quite emotional through it all, and he said that at one point during the time there, between 1942 and the end of 45, there, there was an outbreak of a disease in the camp, and they just didn't have the medication to treat it, and my grandmother, as head nurse or just as her responsibility sort of led her to do, uh, asked for permission to leave the camp and go into uh, one of the cities where the main hospital would have facilities to treat that particular disease. And um, she got an escort and they left the camp. She got the medicines and upon returning at the camp, uh, the gods decided to make life hard for her and they uh, beat her and my father says he thinks they raped her as well, but she never specifically said so. Um, so her deeds that day saved many people. I suspect probably my father as well when you think of what disease does in a, in a space like that. And, but her courage and her sacrifice, and then the countless other stories that we've heard of, that we heard during this last week, uh, many of our fathers, many of our grandfathers and grandmothers even uh, were there. They lived it. They acted courageously and full of self-sacrifice. 
And the gravity of those actions, like my grandmother's and like we celebrated this last week, really are a cause for celebration. And I think so rightfully we make a moment of these occasions and the people that were involved to celebrate their lives. In the U.S., uh, I, possibly here, I just haven't heard it so much, um, there's a very common phrase you'll hear around war veterans, which is, thank you for your service, sir. Thank you for your service, ma'am. It's a very common phrase when somebody sees a war veteran. They really honor the sacrifice of serving in the military or serving your country in some shape or form. And it's just so wonderful to, to consider that as a culture. But we pick up our story in the Messiah in Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53. And uh, Tom just brilliantly helped us last week and pointed us to the servant, Jesus, the ultimate servant and his service. And um, we read about this one whom God sends as his servant. The Father sends his Son as the servant. And we know that uh, Jesus is the servant, particularly spoken of in this passage. There are at times in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah himself is referred to as the servant. And there are times when the nation of Israel is referred to as the servant. Uh, in this particular passage, the servant is speaking prophetically, looking forward in time um, to Israel's ultimate Savior and Messiah. And it's clear that the New Testament writer, so Isaiah being an Old Testament book, um, all of the Old Testament is concluded by around 300 before Jesus is born. So the New Testament writers, um, they believe that this servant refers to Jesus. They um, often uh, quote Isaiah in reference to what Jesus does and what he says and what he's accomplished uh, on our behalf. But also I think the slam dunk argument is that Jesus himself uh, quotes Isaiah and then refers those passages to himself. In Luke 4, we get him quoting out of this exact passage uh, in Isaiah. And then he finishes off by saying, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's like, okay, slam dunk, drop the mic, walk off. Um, it is a, a total, total um, affirmation that 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is speaking about Jesus Christ, the historical Messiah, the historically accurate person who lived and died and was resurrected the Jesus of Nazareth that we worship, if you're a believer and a follower of Christ. So let's read together. We're going to be reading out of Isaiah 52 from verse 13, and we'll read through until 53 verse 12. And as you do that, it's a very familiar passage. Um, maybe you, you go to church just on Christmas. This is one of those verses, uh, passages that you would have heard even at Christmas. And um, I, I wonder, try and pick up words... Or concepts like rebellion and rejection, substitution, and then response as we go through this passage. I'm reading out of the Message Bible. So some of you might start getting twitchy. Um, it is uh, a paraphrase, a wonderfully, I, I think, accurate paraphrase 
of what the heart of the content is. And I, I just felt like the message better explains this passage or helps us better in our context this morning than what the ESV or the NIV would, which we normally use. So here we go, 52 verse 13. Just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurement, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, the God, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sin that did it to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through His bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on Him, on Him. Let's skip a few verses down to 10. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush Him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones, as he, carry, as he himself carried the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sins of the many. He took up the cause of the black sheep. Oh God, thank you for your word, the scripture. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the, the song we sang, you're the lion and the lamb, that you're everything to us. You roar with power and you humble yourself in submission and grace. Thank you that you're with us this morning and allow our hearts to be impacted by your presence, by your truth. Teach us, disciple us, encourage us, send us out with great strength and faith and hope. In the name of Jesus and in His...
to His glory, we pray. Amen. Well, Isaiah writes this passage as a a poetic song of what he sees in a vision. So this is a vision 700 years before Jesus. And he looks forward in time to what people would be like and what the Messiah, Jesus, would do to save them. Isaiah speaks, though, in, in different focal lengths. And we can safely count ourselves in the real target audience that this prophecy is aimed at. Christ follower and skeptic alike are engaged by this vision. We're encouraged to consider it and apply it to our lives because it speaks of the very base core nature of mankind and our general relationship to God. So with that said, I think the first point that Isaiah makes is to remind us that not one of us is seeking out God. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Nobody is the answer. Who would have thought God's saving plan would look like this? Nobody. We are all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. So the answer to these rhetorical questions is no one, or at best, very few people will hear and then respond to Isaiah's encouragement for people to turn back to God. Even if you are a Christian here this morning, Isaiah indicates that it's not you who sought out God, but God who sought us out. When you consider it, it's the horror, the horror of it, the pride of our rebellion in turning away from the God who we've heard repeatedly in this series and pretty much every time we gather around the Scriptures, that He created us for our, uh, he, He created us for Himself to enjoy and that we would be His special people that He commissions to go into all the world and be a blessing, bring the love that He has in Himself to the world. And how many of us ask daily, how shall I not go astray then? Is that a question we even ask? If we consider that our natural inclination is to go astray, should we not ask that question at times? When we've, had, when we've been made for Him, how shall I escape the the pride of sin and the arrogance of going my own way in day-to-day life. The easiest way, and this is what many people do, certainly many in culture, to avoid feeling like we're rebelling against God and rejecting Him is just to not think about it. If we can put Him out of our minds and put Him out, put Him away from our day-to-day lives, Nothing will seem more natural to us than doing our own thing and going our own way. It won't feel like rejection of God. In fact, we see it as our responsibility to go our own way. Look around us, friends. It's become our social duty to live lives the way that we'd like to live it. It's your responsibility to do that. Be true to yourself. 
is the sort of mantra of our generation. The discipline of joyful, worshipful obedience has long fallen away. I'd been a, a Christian for many years um, when I visited a, or when a visiting speaker uh, came to our church and he, he spoke to the men. And I just so clearly felt the Spirit of God point out the very deep pride that I was still living with. Um, my particular sin. And it, I, I collapsed in that meeting. Just absolute flood of tears when I, I realized how hideously, how horribly prideful I was at that time and probably still am to a degree. Thinking I know better than God, better than Scripture, better than one another, better than the family of God. And it gets me in so much trouble, and my pride hurts people. But worst of all, it's still this remnant of the rebellion against God. And that's me, I'm a believer. That's still the reality of my life. Maybe yours as well, is that there are elements of our life where we're still going our own way, rebelling against God. Like sheep who've wandered off, we've all done our own thing, gone our own way. That's the natural state of all of us, friends. We all reject and rebel against God and His ways in some shape or form. Why do we reject Him? Isaiah 52, uh, 53, 2 and 3 is behind me. Just some of the key concepts. Well, looking at Jesus... There was nothing about his views about life and about love and about forgiveness and mercy and money and lust and power and community and prayer and worship and marriage and humility and pride and anxiety. Nothing that he did endorsed our rebellion. There was nothing that he did in his lifestyle that made us go, yeah, I'd like to be like that. His desire to live his life for the glory of God his Father and the good of others made the people around him feel weak and insecure. And you know how this works. It's called an echo chamber in kind of the social media world and it's, it's the classic example of where we just try to surround ourselves with like-minded people who tell us what we'd like to hear, and we tell them what they'd like to hear, and we just echo the same voices round and round again so that we avoid being around and listening to people that are different to ourselves. And so, to protect ourselves, we unfriended Jesus we looked down on Him. We passed over Him. We turned away from Him. We thought He was scum. It's a self-defense mechanism. But friends, He wasn't caught off guard. <laughs> he wasn't surprised by this. He didn't do what you and I, however, would do, which is, oh, you want to rebel, do you? Rebel this. That's what I would do if I was God. 
He did not come to be served. He came to be the servant of many. So the second glimpse we get into Isaiah's vision is of the servant substituting himself for rebellious people like us. I'm going to read verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53 in the, in the ESV. You will still have the message on the screen. I think in this passage, the ESV is really helpful. Surely He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. And God has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Friends, this is the true heart of of the gospel message. This is the good news. God, glorious, wonderful, powerful, loving, substituting Himself for rebels who then lay down their rebellion. Instead of collapsing under the pain that we caused through our rebellion and our rejection, He carries our pain. Instead of disfiguring us and causing us to experience the horror of all the wrong that we've done through our attitudes and our actions and our beliefs, Jesus was disfigured. He was lashed. He was hated and spat on and naked and shamed in our place. Instead of increasing our sorrow, which, to be fair, as a holy God, He had all right to do, He took our sorrows upon Himself. To the point of where Jesus says in Matthew 26, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. That is sorrow. Instead of avenging our sins, and pouring wrath on us, He is pierced and nailed to a cross in our place by sinful men, just like you and I. And all the ripping and tearing and crushing that our rebellion deserves, Jesus takes upon Himself that we might have peace with God and be healed. It's as if you and I take hold of the hammer and the nails. And Jesus takes the full brunt of our rebellion. He bore our anger and our hatred and our malice and our violence and our shame and our disobedience and our disappointments and our dashed hopes and our anxieties, and our social insecurities, and our fears of not being loved, and our fears of not finding true love, and our longings to find a true home, and to find peace in this world, He takes upon Himself, 
and we're exhausted with all our hammering, He takes it, and He takes it, and He takes it. The plan was that He give Himself as an offering for sin so that He'd see life come from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through Him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, He'll see that it's worth it. You are worth it. And glad He did it. Through what He experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. And He Himself carries the burden of our sins. <coughs> Friends, you and I are undeserving. We're shameful. We're sinful. We're rebellious. We are rejecting. We're black sheep that Jesus has taken on His shoulders. And He makes new those black sheep who lay down their rebellion. And He says, you are no longer black sheep, but you are pure and spotless and holy and blameless. You're at peace with God. You're loved. You're given life, life and more life. The Lamb of God, which we sang about. The Lamb of God, slain in the place of the black sheep, so that we become perfect in His sight. Although those of us who are Christians look forward with great hope and expectation to the day when Jesus will return as a conquering hero king on His horse with His sword drawn, in all His perfection and His power, Jesus' first arrival 2,000 years ago was in human weakness and frailty. Full Moore comments, the Judeans despised Him because He was from Galilee. Galileans despised Him because He was from Nazareth. And the Nazarenes despised Him because He had been conceived before His mother married. Strangers looked down on Him because an unmarried 30-year-old was an oddity in their culture. His neighbors looked down on Him because He was the village carpenter and because, because they had climbed trees with His brothers and played hide-and-seek with His sisters. He grew up like a tender shoot out of dry ground, we're told. As for looks, Jesus wasn't the blonde hair conditioned to perfection, blue eyes, colorful sash, white gown, Swedish swimsuit model type Jesus that we think about. He had no beauty or majesty that we would desire Him. And then the crowning moment for His great servant no death in old age as a wealthy, prosperous, well-loved religious teacher surrounded by his family and friends in a comfortable bed. Oh no, he's crucified on a Roman cross, the most shameful, painful death ever invented in the ancient world, abandoned by his closest friends and abandoned by God his Father. You see, friends, Jesus didn't merely become as weak and as frail as we are. He was born the lowest of the low. Compare yourself to, if you want to, we always say, never compare to other people. 
compare yourself to Jesus. He was born the lowest of the low. He lived the most despised life. You think your life is despised? He was despised to the point of someone murdering him. He died the most grievous, horrible, painful death you could possibly imagine. Abandoned by his most precious relationships. So that he can relate and care for and love every one of us. From every different background and from every different experience that we come from. Every one of us is without excuse in the opportunity to lay down our rebellion before this God who knows us, knows our situations, knows our backgrounds, knows our experiences, and offers us new life. The same prophecy that 700 years before Jesus correctly predicted His coming into the world continues like this in Isaiah 12, 13, 15. And in the same way, it says, in the same way that we rejected and rebelled against His astonishingly unseemly and unimpressive features, this unimpressive man, Jesus, we shall be astonished. We shall be astonished and impressed as He sprinkles new life upon many nations and people and cultures and languages, even kings, those who think they're running their lives pretty well and helping to run the lives of others, they will fall silent in realization as they see and understand His majesty, God in our place. I'd love to invite the band to come up, please. Our response this morning, and hopefully every day, what do you think? Gratitude, thankfulness, joy, obedience, humility, sacrificial living, servanthood, worship. We read in Acts about the account of Philip the Apostle coming across the Ethiopian. He was the Ethiopian minister of finance, pretty much. And he'd been worshipping in Jerusalem, and he's on his way back to Ethiopia, and Philip hears him reading out of this exact passage that we've just spoken about. And the Ethiopian says to him, Brother, I, I, don't, I don't understand. What does this mean? I'd love to have been in that conversation, because Philip takes him through the Scriptures and then says, it's Jesus who's the fulfillment of all of these promises. And when they had finished opening the Scriptures, he saw and he understood and he was silent. And his response was, see, here is some water. 
What could prevent me from being baptized? Gratefully and joyfully this morning. There are those who are going to be baptized and they're going to be responding to this highly exalted Christ through being baptized. As their response of worship and joyful obedience. For the rest of us, let's allow their faith to stir us. As they demonstrate God in their place through baptism, let's allow that to stir us as well. God in our place. The exalted, highly lifted up name of Jesus. God in our place. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.